Now entering Nerdist.com. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Competitive Erotic Fan Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Cook, and you've found the Internet's number one most trusted source for Muppet boners and horny loners. Today, you're going to hear the very first round from the very first L.A. show, recorded June 5th, 2012 at the Nerd Melt Theater. This features Amber Tozer, Moshe Kasher, Claudia Kogan, Baron Vaughn, and Emily Gordon, all reading pieces they wrote in advance, as well as me giving a brief lecture on historic erotic fanfiction at the beginning. Enjoy. Now, uh, since generally at least three or four members of my audience are not depraved shut-ins, <laughs> I'd like to start with a brief synopsis on the history of erotic fanfiction. <clears throat> <laughs> People today tend to associate the genre exclusively with the type of subhuman basement dwellers who are married in Warcraft but still virgins in Topeka. <laughs> The types of fellas who make origami stormtroopers out of their spank rags just to have someone to talk to. But erotic fanfiction actually dates back nearly to the dawn of time. The earliest known examples were simply Egyptian hieroglyphics with crudely drawn penises added to them. Similarly, in India, archaeologists recently unearthed an ancient tablet depicting the goddess Shiva giving ten simultaneous hand jobs. Native Americans were no strangers to the erotic fan fiction world, including one tome written by a noted Comanche chief in 1729 depicting he and his buddies using every part of the buffalo. <laughs> one notable absence in the oeuvre is erotic fan fiction featuring Greek mythological figures. But if you think about it, that would be redundant since Greek mythology in its original form was essentially just vivid, lengthy descriptions of all powerful deities firehosing cum into their own daughters. <laughs> Fast forward to the years just prior to the American Civil War, the bulk of erotic fan fiction seemed to mainly be accounts of sinewy African slaves aggressively buggering the slave owners' wives. It's unclear whether these works were generally written by the slaves or by the slave owners' wives. Then came the Roaring Twenties, when swing band leaders tended to be the subject of most works, including one rather tawdry tale, of which I'll spare you the details, but let's just say it involved Glenn Miller mirthfully rutting three flappers with an unlubed trombone slide. Similarly, the 1950s brought us Beatlemania, and unsurprisingly, much erotic work turned up in diaries all over the U.S., generally consisting of rather drawn-out romantic scenarios between the young authors themselves and John, Paul, or George, while Ringo read quietly in the corner, <laughs> took photos, or in some cases, waited in the car. No question that such literature would raise several eyebrows in the 1950s, but standards of decency have, of course, changed over time. For example, in the year 2012, we would think nothing of full-blown erotic fantasies involving, say, Ariel the Mermaid succumbing to forceful yet tender anal penetration from Ursula the Witch using only a rough-hewn strap-on made of barnacle-laden driftwood. <laughs> 
Yes, the internet has ushered in a golden age of erotic fan fiction as the myriad of tales available online today range from the lighthearted, innocent, yet curious frolickings of Dora doing some different kinds of exploring to frankly appalling tales of outright gut-wrenching primal fornication between the Mucinex mascots. <laughs> Which brings us to tonight, where you will witness the talents of some of America's finest comics utterly wasted on this purient juvenile filth. So are you guys ready for some Muppet boners and horny loners? We're going to bring up round one. Baron Vaughn, Amber Tozer, Claudia Kogan, Emily Gordon, and Moshe Kasher, ladies and gentlemen. Big round of applause. So these five fine comics have all chosen their own topic and prepared in advance. So they will be reading to you in a random order based upon how they walked on stage. Let's go with Ms. Amber Tozer first. Amber, step up to the mic. Yes. first okay I just found out that two of my pages weren't printed out so half of this is going to be interesting and your half sets of are usually so nailed down in I advance. know usually I'm crawling around on the floor uh, in my notes okay okay I am doing the view <laughs> and I'm so fucking pissed like I'm so disorganized okay here we go Half of it's gonna be... Whatever. Okay. <clears throat> Fuck. Fuck! Okay. Mi- okay. M- minutes... I'm so pissed. I'm just like, oh, I'm... Whatever. P- page three and five didn't print. Let's do it. I'll just, like, masturbate when I don't know what to say. Okay. Okay. Minutes before showtime, Mike Jasorda, the longtime PA assistant at The View, placed the ladies' matching coffee cups... On the, on the five-top table where the women soon would be seated around to discuss, uh, to do the infamous morning show. Whoopi, Joy, and Barbara all liked coffee, while Sherry preferred Coca-Cola, and on this day, Barbara wanted vodka. <laughs> Most people think she has a speech impediment. Wrong. She's just drunk with an unfortunately shaped mouth. <laughs> This was Mike's last day on the job. He had been working for Barbara and her bitches for over 10 years, and he had had enough. He was never promoted and was consistently emasculated by the host, from Star Jones and Debbie Matalapalalas to the most recent dickhead, Elizabeth Hesselbeck. His pent-up resentment inspired one big prank. All he had to do was sit back and watch it unfold. And five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Whoopi Goldberg. Joy Behar, Sherry Shepard, Elizabeth Hesselbeck, and Barbara Walters. The crowd went wild. One by one, the women walked out smiling and waving. Mike was off to, off to the side of the stage, hands clasped in front of his face, focused on their coffee cups. They all sat down, smiled at the audience, and took one big swig. And took one big swig. Mike's, Mike exhaled with relief. He was worried. He was worried that. Uh, Elizabeth wouldn't take a drink because she's such a dumb bitch and never shuts up. <laughs> okay, and this is the page I don't have. Um, okay, here we go. So then they all take a drink of like the, ex- the ecstasy concoction, right? And Mike was so fucking pissed. He also like planned out. He, he, they all like, they're all like woozy and wasted and Mike was really smart that he programmed the teleprompters to say what he wanted so Whoopi's like all fucked up and she looks at the teleprompter and she's like 
oh, I guess we're going to play a game of truth or dare before we get to the hot topics. And they're all like, yeah. Or like, and then Whoopi says, okay, Barbara, do you want truth or dare? And, and Barbara says, dare. And Whoopi says, and she's looking at the teleprompter, she's like, okay, well, I guess I want you to stick your tongue in my butthole as far as it'll go. <laughs> so Barbara's like, what? You want me to stick my tongue in your butthole? Okay. And so she falls out of the chair and like slithers over to Whoopi and she's like, I can't get up. You're going to have to help me out. And Whoopi's like, no problem, babe. And so Whoopi drops her cargo pants and her cotton underwear and she squats gently on Barbara's face. And then she got a standing ovation because she was so gentle about it. And Whoopi starts crying because she loves standing ovations. And so then Joy had to take over, take over moderating everything. And so she was like, all right, Sherry, it's your turn. Do you pick truth or dare? And Sherry Shepard says, I pick truth. And uh, Joy asked her, okay, if you could do anything in your life, what would you do? And Sherry said, I'd hate fuck Elizabeth Hesselbeck. <laughs> And Joy was like, really? Me too. <laughs> oh, God, I hope I... Uh, okay, so I'm still improving. Okay, and then... Uh, and then, um... And then they're like, yeah, all right. And, um... <laughs> and so Sherry... Oh, I remember this part. Sherry picks up scrawny Elizabeth and slams her on the table and they surround her. It was just like that scene from The Accused, but way funner! Way funner! Everybody was into it, especially Elizabeth. This is not rape! And so Sherry, like, positions herself like she's a gynecologist and, like, sticks her middle finger and index finger... Oh, I think I'm coming up. ...into her vagina. And she, and she, and she was at a steady pace and... and um, she was like, do you like that Hesselbeck, huh? And Elizabeth screamed, you call this hate fucking? This is like junior high bullshit. <laughs> and then Sherry then slipped her pinky into her asshole and Elizabeth screamed, oh yeah, two in the pink, one in the stink. <laughs> While Joy waited for her turn to hate fuck Elizabeth, she squatted down to Whoopi and, and put her breast in her mouth. She moaned with pleasure. Whoopi looked up at Joy and she said, are you having a good time? Joy was like, yeah, I'm just waiting to hate fuck Elizabeth. <laughs> Both Whoopi and Barbara were like, what? You guys are fu hate fucking Elizabeth? We want to do that too. Just then, Mike brought out a box of sex toys for the girls. They were, they were strap-ons, dildos, vibrators, anal beads, whatever. Being the comedians they are, the Whoopi and Joy put strap-ons on their head and waited for Sherry to finish up with her finger-fuck session on Elizabeth. Sherry's pace had picked up quite a bit, and she was running out of breath. She was too tired to keep jamming her hands in her holes, so she just decided to punch her in the face. <laughs> Sherry got a standing ovation. As she bowed, she tipped over and knocked over Barbara, and they, 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 they hit their heads and passed out. So then it was just the three of them. Uh, fuck. Sherry, Ju no. Sherry and Barbara passed out. They're fucked up. And then um, Elizabeth's still on the table. Oh, and whoop. So, so then... <laughs> oh, my God, I have a learning disability. Um, I do! Um... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Whoopi positioned Elizabeth on all fours and said, let's do this doggy style. And Joy yelled, yeah, rough, rough. Elizabeth was like, then I wrote some of it out. I, Elizabeth was like, I love dogs. Two of the seven of them we have are rescue. And Whoopi was like, shut up. Who are you trying to be, Sarah McLaughlin? And Elizabeth said, I love Sarah. And with that annoying statement, both Whoopi and Joy 
tightened the dildo strapped to their heads and each taking turn in a hole, they fucked her. And I think this is, they took the, the term headbanging to a whole new level. <laughs> and there they all were. Sherry and Barbara passed out. Whoopi and Joy hate fucking Elizabeth. And Mike was thrilled. He finally got, he finally got what he deserved to control those fucking women. After the episode, he went on to produce a morning show called Screw the News, wink, wink. And, and then all the ladies didn't remember what happened and I, the other page didn't print out. So that's my story with you. <laughs> Amber Tozer, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. All right. Moshe Kasher, ladies and gentlemen. So, uh, my topic is, um, Occupy Wall Street, uh, and or black people. I, I can't tell. Less love on black people. All right. Uh, okay. The cold shook through her like an earthquake. No, like the comedian earthquake. She'd always loved black comedy. Whether it was Dr. Strangelove or Medea's Why Did I Get Married... As long as a thing could be called black, she was on board. Lisa Bunham was white, painfully white. She hated that about herself. A lithe, willowy woman, her hair was blonde, dreaded, and interwoven with African kitsch. A bead carved into a black power fist, red, black, and green hair wraps braided up to express her solidarity with the African pan culture. She even had a complete copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X tied between two dreadlocks, (laughs) secured and matted down with rubber cement into her head. When a particularly beautiful black man would walk by, Lisa would whip her head around like a heavy metal guitarist and hope like hell the guy would stop and say, excuse me, miss, but you seem to have an Alex Haley book stuck in your hair. (laughs) Oh, did that get there again? (laughs) You see, I just read it so much it often gets tangled up in me. I simply love that book. The philosophies of Brother Malcolm just really speak to me, you know? I mean, pre-Mecca Malcolm. Not that lovey-dovey, white-is-all-right Malcolm who betrayed Brother Farrakhan. She hoped this would pique her potential lover's interest, but for some reason it usually just elicited a confused grimace from the guy she was talking to, and he would walk off. Lisa would coo after him, Get this Ofe pussy! (laughs) It, It... It never worked. Lisa had majored in African-American studies at Tuskegee University, one of only two white students in the entire undergraduate class. She had been bristling with excitement when she first enrolled, thrilled at the prospect of never seeing another white face for four years and making tons and tons of black friends. Her roommate had been strangely uncomfortable with her plan of covering all the mirrors in the house so that Lisa could avoid even seeing her own oppressive visage. (laughs) So instead, Lisa would run by mirrors as fast as she could in the morning, and she would brush her teeth, crouch down under the bathroom sink, painfully aware of the pale face that would be staring back at her should she stand up. Weirdly, Lisa hadn't made one friend the entire time she was at Tuskegee. But on a positive note, she had been informed by the school that a a special single-occupancy dorm room had been made available for her due to her academic excellence. When she graduated, she walked the stage in a full ankle-length hijab that she'd ordered from Talabandwidth.com so as to avoid making anyone uncomfortable with her presence on stage. Lisa was lonely now and unemployed. There were pretty few jobs available for white African-American studies professors. And as a result, Lisa had been forced to go on government assistance. She felt pretty good about that. (laughs) 
So when the occupy... <laughs> this is my favorite and the worst line. So when the Occupy movement took over the Franco-Gawa Plaza and started to fight the system, it seemed only natural for Lisa to move into a tent in downtown Oakland. She'd been here for months, and she felt like a part of the solution. She'd been in on the ground floor of the movement and had even organized subgroups within the camp, such as Hacky Sack for Justice, Hula Hoop for Truth, and so on. She still felt largely avoided by most of the other occupiers, but she was used to things like that by now. She knew that deep down they liked her. They even gave her some cool nicknames like Camp Creeper and Aunt Tom. (laughs) She felt at home here. But that night, that night, (laughs) but that night, That night, the cold was so biting that even the Lion of Judah blanket she'd scavenged from the dumpster (laughs) that she'd scavenged from the dumpster marked delousing bin couldn't keep her warm. She was shivering when she heard his voice. Hello? Is anyone in there? The voice was calm and sure and deeply baritone. I'm here, Lisa called back. It's pretty cold out here. You have any room in there? Now, normally Lisa wouldn't have invited a stranger in like this, but she wanted company, and it felt like a part of the community spirit, and so she didn't want to turn him away. Sure, just unzip the tent and come in. I have some root tea if you like that sort of thing. The tent flap opened up to a dream. A tall, ebony man crawled in and shivered. (laughs) Thanks so much. You are a lifesaver. You're black! (laughs) (laughs) He chuckled. (laughs) Huh? Well, I guess I am. (laughs) She handed him some root tea and tried to maintain her composure. Here, have some tea. Get warm. He drank greedily with his eyes locked on her. That's real nice. Thank you. There was something so different about this man. She couldn't put her finger on it, but she really wanted to try. (laughs) I'm Chris, the man said, taking off his coat and leaning back. Lisa took him in. He was dreaded, too and wearing a single-piece lycra rainbow suit. No wonder he was cold. It was skin sheer. In the V of his legs, Lisa couldn't help but notice, right at the crescendo of the swirling psychedelic rainbow spiral print, a huge bulge that threw off all perspective of the suit and of her mind. Lisa stopped thinking clearly. Oh my, your suit, it's, it's so tight. Uh... Yeah, I guess it is. Is it uncomfortable? It's getting more uncomfortable by the second. (laughs) She looked again. The huge bulge was somehow twice as big now, pushing and bursting forth as the lycra buckled from the force, strands of rainbow popping and peeling back like a firework exploding in slow motion. (laughs) Is this okay? Chris smiled a huge grin as he said it. It's very okay, as long as it fits into the doctrines and principles of the Occupy movement. Chris grunted, at this rate, it's not going to fit into anything. As he said it, the beast between his legs seemed to shoot up and out, and the final bit of integrity of the lycra was compromised. His skin suit peeled back, and like a python molting at a thousand times the speed it should, his cock shot up, naked and bold. He was unleashed. (laughs) 
Also unleashed was a flood of wetness such as Lisa hadn't felt since her last period, which was over two years ago. <laughs> the Lion of Judy was now so was not the Lion of Judah was now doggy paddling in the pool of her vaginal flow. Lisa felt a woman again. Chris's manhood throbbed as Lisa peeled back her corduroy patchwork skirt to reveal her faux fur smock, which she lifted up to reveal her, her hemp pantaloons, which she pulled off to reveal her Guatemalan friendship smock, which she discarded to reveal her linen goddess enchanter pants, which she threw off to reveal her mound. <laughs> it quivered naked and absolutely covered with a six-inch thick pelt of flaxen hair which glistened in the candlelight, damp and shiny like a pile of hay left out in the rain. Put it inside of me, Lisa quivered. How? Chris seemed confused. Oh, sorry. Lisa parted her hair and then parted more of it and then put two scrunchies on it and three... And three barrettes, and finally, her steaming sex was revealed. Oh shit, there it is. Chris climbed on top of her. Occupy me, give it all to me. No, give me the 99% of it. Occupy Ball Street, Chris whispered. And he slid himself all the way into her, all the way to the hilt. Lisa thought she would be split in two and she didn't mind so much. He pumped into her savage and hard. She screamed in delight and terror. Every thrust, she disappeared a bit until there was only him, his sex, her cunt. She was gone. All that remained was sex. That and the unwavering principles of the Occupy Wall Street movement <laughs> to end the corporate control of the government. He thrust and thrust, and her, and her agony ebbed to ecstasy and back again. His breathing quickened, and she knew he was close. Shoot it in me. Make me the mother of a brother. <laughs> I'll do you one better. Chris pulled out of her and stood up, his impossibly large cock throbbing and steaming from her cunt-sopping wetness. His eyes rolled back in his head, and, be, and he began to shoot. At first, the strand, as the first strands hit her, she groaned in ecstasy, but when she opened her eyes, there was something very wrong. Chris seemed in agony. His face was scrunched in pain. She looked down at his throbbing rock and saw something that terrified her. His cum was shooting from him, spraying her. But it was wrong. It was ink black. Dark. Darker than space. Darker than night. Darker than a PlayStation 3. <laughs> With every splurt, Chris seemed more in agony and somehow smaller. He was shrinking. Squidding cum was shooting everywhere, covering the, t the tent, drenching the bed. Lisa was covered. Every inch of her was being sprayed down by the thick black ejaculate. It was dripping from the ceiling of the tent. Chris was screaming. Chris was shrinking. Chris was gone. He disappeared. There was no one there. Terrified, but somehow too exhausted to do anything about it, Lisa passed out in a pile of everything. Light peeked through the tent door the next morning, waking her. She looked around in a panic. There was nothing there. No lycra, no jacket, no soggy black cum. It was like Chris had never been there at all. Jesus, was this a dream? It seemed so real. Lisa laughed at herself a little, and she felt foolish. Oh, well. 
If that was a dream, she should thank her subconscious. No time to waste on fantasy. There was work to be done. Somebody had to start the work on the people's stew. A daily cauldron of boiled gruel from whatever had been dumpstered the night before <laughs> that the camp used to feed everyone. Lisa had stew duty that morning, so she shook the sleep from her eyes and ran to the commissary tent. As she rushed over, people nodded and waved. Odd. They usually snickered when she came past. A tall Rasta called out to her as she ran by. Good morning to you, sister. She waved hello. She was late. As she burst into the commissary, she saw her partner. Dubois. Damn it. She hated working with him. He always teased her and said she smelled like a wet dog when it rained. Hello, Dubois. You want to get started chopping? I'll stoke the stew fire. Oh, thank God. Somebody knew, Dubois sighed. I'm usually stuck with Camp Creeper. You new around here? Uh, no. Real funny, Dubois. He stared at her for a moment, confused. Well, whatever. I'm just glad it's a new face. Go get the pot and I'll chop the found meat. <laughs> Lisa grabbed the huge steel pot, burnished and shimmering silver, and put it on the burner. She lit a match and the stove poofed to life. She raised her head to pour the broth into the pot when she caught her reflection in the mirrored pot's face. She gasped and dropped the broth all over the floor as she looked at the face staring back at her. A tear fell down her cheek. It was just like her face, but the woman in the pot was black. Black as ebony. Black as night. Black as cum. <laughs> Motion cash, ladies and gentlemen. Emily Gordon, come to the stage. Come on up here, Emily. <laughs> Emily has actually been paid to write pornography. Is that true? I have. I used to write under a pen name for Bust Magazine. Oh, was I not supposed to let that out? Uh, well, it was under a pen name, and I will not reveal it. But it was Perfect. Like 10 years ago, which is also quite frightening <laughs> to think about. Most you were Kasher, everybody. Can I just... <laughs> Jesus. One tear. I had one tear myself. Uh, all right. <laughs> The stout man stormed into his best friend's apartment, flush-cheeked and breathing hard. Can you believe someone managed to take up three parking spaces out there? Three? It's not like it was a stretch limo. It was a Prius. That was a concerted effort to screw me over. Fuming, he flopped down onto the couch next to his best friend, who seemed unperturbed by the interruption. Oh, calm down, he said absently, eating cereal. What is that, Kashi? That stuff is just granola with hippie rebranding. And frankly, I'm surprised you fell for it. You know, I am sick and tired of you being so negative all the time. Can we not just enjoy each other's company without you invoking some damned conspiracy? They both stand furious. Conspiracy? Now who needs to calm down? I'm just making conversation about cereal. You really are a piece of work, you know that? By now, the two friends are screaming and gesticulating wildly in their pointless argument. Eyes wild, chests heaving. So it somehow felt natural for them to go from standing nose to nose to having the most intense wet hot kiss two men have ever shared the live studio audience gasped with excitement George and Jerry have finally decided to surrender to their desires not that there's anything wrong with that got a million of them uh, for a moment there's only the sucking panting and sighing sounds that only electric kisses can create Jerry grabs George's glasses and throws them to the floor and George entwines his fingers in Jerry's soft curls, pulling just enough to make Jerry want it more. Jerry sucks George's tongue like a juji fruit. The kiss is broken when George pushes Jerry down on the couch. Standing over him, George feels like dashing architect Art Vandelay, and he can tell that Jerry sees him with new eyes, too. 
Jerry pulls off his shirt as fast as he can and starts working on George's belt buckle. He pulls out George's cock, and there is no concern for shrinkage now. George's cock is enormous. <laughs> Jerry licks his lip, lips, and then slowly, his hungry eyes on George's, stuffs every bit of that cock into his hot mouth, relishing how George's eyes roll back in his head. Jerry pulls out his own cock and starts stroking it. Soon, George is straddling Jerry on the couch, just fucking the shit out of his mouth. <laughs> when the door bursts open and Kramer tumbles in, Kramer style. <laughs> hey, yo, What? George and Jerry are so caught up in what they're doing that they don't even notice but the studio audience's applause startles them and George's cock tumbles out of Jerry's mouth like an old man returning soup (laughs) I was just across the hall and wondered if you had any spaghetti he trails off looking shocked perhaps a little disappointed and aroused "I, I always thought I'd be the one he mutters Jerry pushes George aside, stands up, wipes his mouth, and crosses the room to Kramer, who is still standing by the front door. He unbuttoned Kramer's ridiculous bowling shirt, licks and sucks on his collarbone, and then gently pushes Kramer's head down. Kramer drops to his hands and knees and takes Jerry's stiff cock into his mouth eagerly. Are these pretzels making you thirsty? (laughs) Jerry said wickedly to raucous audience applause and laughter. Not to be left out, but feeling a little bit left out. He's George. George walks over to the duo, drops to his knees behind Kramer, and starts licking his asshole like it was an ice cream cone. Kramer moans, and when Kramer is good and wet, George slides into him. George is balls deep in Kramer's ass, and he can tell it's Kramer's first time. By the weird yelping noises he makes, noises he usually only hear when Kramer answers a question, is surprised by something, walks into a room, any of those situations. The sounds just turn George on more. Kramer's asshole opens up like a jar of Ovaltine. (laughs) It's gold, Jerry. Uh, For for a few minutes, the three of them are just a mass of spit, sweat, and semen until Jerry's intercom squawks. It's Laney. The three of them freeze and exchange glances until Jerry shrugs, moves his hand up to the buzzer, and buzzes Elaine in. When she walks in, she's confronted with the hot, wet stink of three grown men fucking the shit out of each other. George's bald head glistens. Jerry's grown-out chest hair, you shaved it, sparkles with cum. <laughs> After taking it all in, Elaine shouts, This is why I can't find a dateable man in New York City. The men are terrified and then excited as she takes down that stupid weird bun thing she always did to her hair, uh, removes her flower print dress and those weird saddle shoes. Jerry, go down on me. Kramer, you better put that cock in my ass right now. And George, you can watch. <laughs> she never liked George. George feels slighted but the other two are happy to oblige. They haven't seen bossiness like this since the soup Nazi. I had to get in there somewhere. Uh, Jerry manages to put his cock in George's ass while licking Elaine's clitoris. It rhymes with Dolores. Thank you. Uh, Elaine begrudgingly agrees to jerk off George, and Kramer has his sponge-worthy cock buried deep in Elaine's snatch. At some point, Kramer tries to nibble on Jerry's pubic hair, which is a bit weird, but everyone figured that it would be Kramer would be the weird one, so it's, it's fine. Uh, it went on like this for some time until the four of them had fucked each other every way possible and were all covered in each other's sex juices and they lay there exhausted all masters of their own domains Jerry leaves to buy robes and lotions a new bedspread, a new curtain thick carpeting and weirdo lighting because now he's an orgy guy Uh, George, Kramer, and Elaine stay behind to fuck a little bit more yada 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 we cut to a scene of Jerry on stage doing a bit about how funny orgasm faces are the bit kills Emily Gordon. Thank you so much, Emily. You ready? All right. 
Let's bring Baron Vaughn up to the stage. Baron Vaughn. Um, <laughs> the title of my story is better than my story. <clears throat> Tyler Perry's Medea's Big Fat Orgy. <laughs> Good afternoon, said Medea to a diverse crowd of sexed up, semi clothed people wearing animal masks. And welcome to the fifth Fuckstable of the year, y'all. Cheers abounded as Medea looked around her swanky palace, poised to become a vortex of cocks, cunts, and whatever poles and holes were in between. She'd won the lottery a few years ago, and it changed her life. Her financial troubles had been washed away, and she picked up <laughs> and moved out of Atlanta to the quiet, wealthy suburb of Alpharetta to live in luxury in the biggest mansion the town had ever seen. Well, you can take the Medea out of trouble, but you can't take the trouble out of Medea. <laughs> yes, this suburb was boring. Medea had also found that with all this free time, she took to rubbing that wizened, winkle, that wizened wrinkled, floppy cooter of hers. <laughs> Boredom brought on a postmenopausal sex drive she'd never known. Next thing you know, she was paying her butler to rail her. Before long, her eyes had opened up to the repressed, ravenous urges of everyone in the entire community. So she, being the sturdy broad she is, started a masked sex party on occasions when her family was out of town, of course. <laughs> it had been an inconsistent affair, but it had become so buzzed about that she planned from here on out to make it a weekly gathering. And the town was ecstatic. Now, a few rules, Chiron. You <laughs> must keep your masks on. And you must use protection. I catch you breaking these rules and I'll cut you. The revelers laughed. That's the correct response because we all know I'll shoot you. They laughed again. That part is not funny. Get to fucking. <laughs> While the crowd dispersed, Medea saw from the corner of her bespectacled eye the only other person allowed to be unmasked at this orgy, her young ward, Nikki Grady. It's played by Kiki Palmer. <laughs> pouting in her teen dominatrix getup. Nikki? Medea called out, wipe that frown from your face. There's all sort of fat dick for you to suckle on tonight. <laughs> Trust me, I'll suckle and get that sweet, frothy nectar from as many meat sticks that want it, but that doesn't change me. I'm moody and stuff. <laughs> Girl, you need to learn something. Now get down to the dungeon and whip whoever done chain themselves. You shaved your middles? Yes, it's smoother than a bald Republican's head. Good. Get to whipping. Medea took a moment to take in the cockophony of euphoria <laughs> emanating from her home. Spanking, pulling, biting, poking, prodding, moaning, groaning, grunting, screaming, ripping, thwapping. It was a fugue of fuck that would bring Beethoven's hearing back. And he'd hear the sweet music of balls slapping against thighs. Every nook and cranny of space was filled with the sound of every person's every nook and cranny being filled. But even in that good place, Medea smelled something fishy that wasn't just modern dancer pussy. <laughs> Girls, take a break, she said to a few women swaying nearby. She wondered how she didn't notice them before. <laughs> Meanwhile, in a random corner of Casa de Pubis, a fully nude man with a slight build walked into a room of many bedrooms to meet two other men with the exact same build and amount of clothing. They all had identical pig masks and matching four inches on a good day penises. Sorry, I'm late, guys. Walked into the wrong room and got doused in the face with the long-distance projectile ejaculates from some lady getting it from a little person. Sounds like a mouthful. Damn right it was. Tasted like bathwater. 
These were the Mycinelli brothers. One spoke. Okay, guys, we all agree that our long-term orgy started by your father is threatened by this new orgy. Our sex fest is a tradition in this town, and we're not about to let some nouveau riche black bitch come in here with her flavor and finger snapping and change everything we've ever known. And I think we can all agree that the fact that we're white, rich, and entitled is a good reason to have things the way we want them. <laughs> the second asked, why, why did you just say that all... Why did you say all of that out loud? I only speak in exposition, he continued. <laughs> I pulled some strings and got this. He revealed a small vial with an emerald glow. It's a small liquid dose of concentrated AIDS. If we slip this into Medea's black minge, no one will ever sleep with her again, and she'll have no choice but to shut down her orgy and choose a life of solitude. The second spoke up again. I'm sorry. Um, don't you think that's excessive? And... Uh, <laughs> Where did, you, where did you put that vial? You're totally naked. They searched us coming in, and it seems too fragile a container to stuff up your ass. Why are you asking all this stuff? I only speak about holes in the plot. <laughs> Ten more uncomfortable minutes of shtick, and the three agreed to execute brother number one's plan. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the dungeon, Nikki begrudgingly shaved the last patch of hair off the buttock of a man wearing a goat mask and nothing else but shoes made to look like cloven hooves. He was locked in a stockade, medieval style, with his newly shaven hindquarters pointing at her. She sighed as she threw the razor back in a bucket of wash and reached for her well-worn cat-o'-nine tails. Ho-hum, wimpin' another fool, she thought to herself as she routinely whipped the stranger with the mental absence of a bald Republican's medicated housewife. <laughs> sigh-whip, sigh-whip, sigh-whip. <laughs> said the man in the mask. Nikki was amused. What? Are you talking to me? She figured maybe he had a gag under his mask. She lifted only the bottom, being careful not to violate the rules. And sure enough, the man had a ball gag, which she removed. I said, all right, stop it. This is the worst whipping I've ever gotten. And I was whipped by a man with no limbs once. Thought it would be fun, but I just wanted to lick his nubs. Anyway, <laughs> what is your problem, one late young lady? Young lady, Nikki protested. I've been pregnant ten times in the last year with one miscarriage. I'm as grown as they come, and you best watch how you talk to a system, Mr. Locked Up Ass Out. The man took a moment. What are you really angry about? <laughs> this question was so sudden and on point that Nikki was thrown back. No one ever asked her anything about any hoozle. I, I don't know, she replied. I've just been angry for so long that I don't know how not to be. This comfort and wealth, it's weird. I don't know what to do with myself. I know how you feel, said the man in a knowing, understanding voice. You do? Sure. Look, you see that blue duffel in the corner? There's a strap-on dildo in it. You should put it on. Nikki got it and wrapped it around her pelvis. Something instantly felt right. She felt alive. He continued, now, stick that in my anus and pump away. Don't forget to call me Satan while you're at it. Nikki grabbed the man by the hips and entered his butt cunt slowly. He grunted as she thrusted the cucumber-sized phallus in his slightly browned exit and felt more and more power as it became more and more stretched and distended. She had found herself and wasn't going to let go. <laughs> the Mycinelli brothers had found their way into Medea's master bedroom, but weren't exactly sure what to do from then. <laughs> then suddenly, number one came up with the plan. Okay, brother number three, you're going to stay here and seduce Medea when she comes in. Then when she's not looking, slip this vial in her puss-puss. Wait, uh, uh, wait a minute, that's Cray. Before number three could pro uh, protest, the sound of big black woman was fast approaching. Brothers number one and two quickly hid in the closet with shades so they could see the whole thing transpire. Number three readied himself and pulled on his PP to get it hard. It wasn't working. He needed to get in character. He slapped it a few times. He twisted it almost all the way around. Nothing. Flaccid like a bald Republican callback. 
And then the door opened. Hello. <laughs> Said Medea, decked out in a sheer silk night robe, a feathered boa, and her face done up in a way that would make RuPaul faint in envy. Number three was Instahard. Full attention, 4.1 inches of dick. Medea went on. How can I help you? Uh, I, uh, I was lost, and uh, uh, brother number three trailed off, failing to improvise well. The other Mycinelli watched from the closet, hitting their heads with their palms, wondering how could they have been so stupid as to let brother three just run without a script. I know where you're trying to go to, honey. Medea finished the thought for him. You're trying to get to Pound Town. Why don't you come get some of this moist ebony muff? Medea threw off her robe and revealed her elderly body. But that's just it. Her body wasn't elderly. Somehow she had defied age and gravity, and her body was young, nubile, with smoother chocolate curves. It looked like Naomi Campbell in her 20th birthday suit. For an older woman that looked like a giant man in bad drag, one might assume that under that collection of moo-moos is a scene that would make a Vietnam vet shudder. But no, Medea's body had held up. I know, really surprising. Brother number three's penis grew an extra tenth of an inch in awe of the experience he was about to have as Medea tackled him and threw him on the uh, the four-poster Victorian-style bed she had. She mounted him and began to ride him. She rode him with ferocity, with a fiery passion, like she was trying to channel the rage and anger of a people's oppression through her vagina. Brother three already felt like he was coming, and coming, and coming again. He was experiencing perpetual orgasm. He had heard about it in sting books, but for some (laughs) other unknown reason, his dick stayed hard. He had experienced nothing like this ever before, and his eyes rolled so far back in ecstasy, he was sure he'd lose his sight forever. Boy, or should we be nice to have another cock to suckle on, said Medea out loud as if she knew someone else was in the room. The Mycinellis in the closet looked at each other. Was she talking to them? They looked at each other's dicks, both hard. Both were ready to fulfill the request they just heard. Brother two seemed to jump out of the closet before brother one could even look up. Brother two leaped with anticipation to the bed in a straight shot like Raiden from Mortal Kombat. (laughs) But with his meat pole aimed at Medea's salivating mouth hole. She caught him with her mouth and slurped his member in a way that couldn't be matched. She was an experienced sex goddess. These Mycenellis were having the time of their lives. From the outside, however, it looked like they were losing in a wrestling match to a Yeti with a banging bod. (laughs) It's almost over, don't worry. And I got a phone call. She was fucking them to death. (laughs) Shit, where I just lost my place. Son of a motherless goat. Ah, she was fucking them to death, literally. But they didn't seem to mind. They didn't realize the pleasure was draining all the life out of them. Brother Three's perpetual orgasm was making his heart beat too fast. And Brother Two's head looked like it was about to explode. Brother One saw what was happening. They had fallen for her plot to stop their plot. He stepped out of the closet. He lifted the vial of AIDS. He screamed, you black whore! He threw the vial, and as it flew through the air, Medea stopped fucking. The other Mycinelli brothers came back to consciousness and looked in horror as the vial flew at them. Then suddenly, catch... The hand of a man grabbed the AIDS vial out of the sky. That hand was connected to a goat mask and hoof shoes. Around his neck was a leash with little Nicky holding it. You little bitches, said the man behind the mask. I'm sorry about this, Medea. Who the fuck are you, said my Sinelli brother number one. Goat Satan removed his mask and... Dad, said brothers one and two. Yeah, I was going to say that too, said brother number three. Brother number one continued, but I don't get it. How can you be here when it threatens the sanctity of our family orgy? Orgies aren't about who's got the better or longer what. They're about finding out who will do that one thing to you that only you like that no one in normal society has the guts to do. 
There's always room for more orgies. Ain't that right, said Medea, who was already magically back in her granny wearing. Granny wear, smoking a cigarette and a long filter. I came up to tell him that, uh, t- uh, I came up with him to tell you I found what I love, which is penetrating male ass with an oversized dildo. Luckily, we came in the dick nick of time. What is that stuff, said Nikki. AIDS, <laughs> said brother number one. We wanted to make a very evil point. Everyone nodded in agreement that the point would have been evil as shit. <laughs> Let's go, boys. I got to teach you more about manners. Then he farted loudly. Sorry, extra intestinal space. <laughs> Goat Satan Father Mycinelli took his sons out of the room by their penises like third graders being sent to the principal's office. Medea quizzed, what are you going to do with all that A's juice? Mr. Hoof turned and said, I'm not sure, but Costa Rica isn't going to like it. <laughs> a laugh was shared among all. <laughs> Wait. Wait, mister, asked Nikki. How did you know that dildoing your poop shoe would bring me transcendent joy? Mr. Mycinelli smiled, looked into Nikki's soul and said, you're wealthy now. And when you're wealthy, you can only find pleasure by fucking someone in the ass. (laughs) Everyone looked at everyone with a gaze of profound knowing as gospel music that conveniently echoed the themes of this story swelled over the sound of carnal pleasures taking place at Medea's big fat orgy. Yes, Baron Vaughn. Please welcome Claudia Kogan to the stage. Do you need help? You want me to grab that chair? All right. Are you ready? Yes, you are. Um, This is called Spew and a Half Men, Charlie Comes Home. (laughs) Um, That day was a breezy sunset on the beach in Malibu, California's most privileged and some would say sexy suburb. If you listen, the rolling waves of the Pacific seem to whisper... Spread legs. Spread legs. (laughs) Nearby Charlie, a hoarse 40-something man-child, stands watching one house like it was his mom's tits. Fun to play with, but not his to suck anymore. At least not until she broke up with him last year, saying he was too old. Who needed that used-up cougar anyway? They keep making new old ladies every day. Um... He throws his, the cigarette into a rowboat and gets a running start, vaulting over the deck wall of his old home. Looking into the living room on the other side of the sliding door at the couches where he spent years plunging into one ni- nubile slippery pussy after another, looking at the glass coffee tables he used to pay Honduran prostitutes to shit on, <laughs> looking at the candlesticks he used to stick up his nephew's ass to get him ready for football away games. His dick started to twitch And stroke itself under his linen Bermuda shorts No little Charlie, not yet (laughs) There'll be plenty of slot for you to coin in no time Charlie tried the door and it slid aside easily Almost as easily as the kimono his brother Alan would wear When he would visit Charlie's room Drunk on Trader Joe's Prosecco (laughs) Anybody home, he called out No answer Alan probably took the whole family out to the ballet or for chariot rides or saunas like a faggot, he thought to himself. (laughs) Although the thought of Alan's softer side, which he claimed to hate, made his pink mantenna strain ever outward. Charlie looked around, and most of it seemed the same since he left for his honeymoon, where he had faked his own death, living in Mexico after as a pimp and a coyote. Everything was the same except for one thing, a picture of Alan and another man naked. 69ing while parachuting 
He was seething, jealous, jealous of the other man, the photographer, and the sky. <laughs> there would be hell to pay, and the banker was his dick. <laughs> he heard a car park and a cell phone conversation get louder. I was going to buy the Cuisinart, but the Williams Sonoma was out. Well, fuck you too, mother. Charlie stood blocking Alan, his brother, relishing the electricity in Alan's discovering eyes. But, but, I thought you were dead. I went to hell, but now I'm back. <laughs> um, Charlie's cock tilted all the way up. A, a weapon ready to assume its role as a flesh club, there to punch out the insides of Alan's trembling mussy. Alan must have been thinking the exact same thing because before he knew it, he was bent over the couch, pants down, his tangy blackberry opening and closing like a baby bird's mouth while he moaned in anticipation. Not yet. I'm a little rusty. R rustier than your sheriff's badge, Charlie quipped. Charlie opened a bottle of blue pills and one fell swoop down to hold the entire bottle. Don't, Charlie. That's Walden's bottle of extra strength Viagra, the stuff he uses to keep us in line. <laughs> <laughs> Who's Walden? I'm impressed. Where did Walden get these? He traded them for Jake's anal virginity in Tijuana. Jake is his nephew. <laughs> Don't worry, I built up a tolerance for Viagra when I was in the Greek army. You were in the Greek army? Four years, their policies don't ask, and you'll never get any. <laughs> Just then... Just then, Berta, the sassy white housekeeper, entered, breaking the hilarious banter they used to buy time while the Viagra started to work. Oh boy, if you think I'm cleaning up your Santorum, you'd better think twice. <laughs> Berta, you get out of here, screamed Alan. Charlie took a whole bottle of Viagra. No hole is safe. Berta just chuckled. I took Viagra once, had that one problem. I couldn't take my strap-on off for four hours. <laughs> Your mom's pussy didn't seem to mind. Charlie swings his arm under Berta's apron, landing direct hit to her frothing slime wallet and, <laughs> and tugs her clothes. Is your pussy making a latte? Um, just a little yeast infection from fucking a baker. Enough zingers, Berta. How about some old-fashioned, unrelenting fuxation zinged, in, zinged into your sauce flaps, courtesy of the F-18 between my legs? I thought you'd never ask. Charlie wastes no time taking Berta as savagely as Oprah alone with a plate of wings. <laughs> I still got it. And it wouldn't be the first time, sassed Berta, as she disappeared up the stairs with her vacuum cleaner, the lush horsetail of her pony play butt plug, giving us one last visual gag before things get serious. <laughs> Just then, Walden enters, the new man. His nostrils are flaring, and he's not sure, but he's ready to fight. He can smell, smell more than just two and a half men in the house. Um... <laughs> Stunned by Charlie's surging masculinity, um, Walden's erection begins to glow from the tip as his urethra, <laughs> which is now widening into a passage big enough for Charlie's throbbing dick to enter. <laughs> Congrats, you just got parted by cock Moses. <laughs> now you're getting fucked like a woman. <laughs> and then I, I ran out of time. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Claudia Kogan, ladies and gentlemen.
bring everybody up from round one, wherever they are. Do a little vote. Come on, round one. Let's all just let's all just uh, meditate on frothing slime wallet while we wait. <laughs> Jesus. First, uh, I'm going to remind you of what they all did, so don't vote yet. I'm just going to remind you. So we started with Amber with The View. Then we had Moshe Kasher with Occupy Wall Street slash black people. (laughs) Emily Gordon with Seinfeld. Uh, Baron Vaughn with Tyler Perry slash Medea. And then, of course, Claudia Kogan with Two and a Half Men. So we'll start voting with Amber Tozer. Moshe Kasher. Moshe's got some fans in the house. Emily Gordon with Seinfeld. Mr. Baron Vaughn, Tyler Perry. And Claudia Kogan, Two and a Half Men. I think we need a little Baron Vaughn, Moshe Kasher runoff. So you gotta dedicate. You gotta just go for one here. Can't be here all night. Moshe Kasher. I, I, I don't want to say this, but it kind of feels like a black off. <laughs> Baron Vaughn. Your champion from round one, Moshe Kasher, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, guys. Let's hear it for everybody in round one. Well, that does it for round one, and congratulations, Moshe Kasher. To hear round two, featuring Rob Delaney, Eliza Skinner, Eli Braden, Aparna Nancharla, and Guy Branham, writing based upon audience suggestions, go download episode 12. Upcoming competitive erotic fanfiction shows include July 14th at the Hawthorne Theater in Portland, Oregon, July 16th at the Nerdmelt Showroom here in Los Angeles, August 23rd and 24th at the High Plains Comedy Festival in Denver, and Labor Day weekend at Bumbershoot in Seattle. Stay tuned for more details on those as well as other upcoming dates. Details can always be found in the Competitive Erotic Fan Fiction Facebook group or by following me on Twitter at Brian Cooking. See you next time. Now leaving Nerdist.com.